Gaming on the Frontier. This is Bruce. This is Trav. And this is Jonathan. Welcome to Gaming on the Frontier, your podcast of beating that dead horse so long we actually reached our 500th episode. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome, everybody, wow. to Gaming on the Frontier. <laughs> And we are excited as as and all that other stuff to be here because for some of us, this has been a very, very long journey. Even though it, we're the 500th episode, our uh, pod site says that we've done more than that. And yet we take every episode we normally record. It's a two-hour episode split into two. So theoretically, we've only done about 250 topics, but still, you know, oh. the first year that I was, that it was even a last past a year. I figured we would be done with our topics by the end of the year. And that would be it. And we just say, look what we did. Isn't this great? Now let's go on to the next edition of Fringeworthy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> For those of you who are, uh, who are not that familiar with uh, gaming on the frontier, uh, we started off as the Fringeworthy podcast because yep. it was my dream to uh, produce a product that would be able to enhance the game Fringeworthy. I considered the flagship product of the TriTac Games Company uh, up in Detroit, Michigan. And uh, I always felt that there wasn't enough development of this game. I had already done some stuff for Bureau 13. I was trying to put out a uh, newsletter um, and it was very hard, you know, because you had to get, it's just very hard to put out actual physical product. And I said, there's got to be some way of getting this information out to the fans in a faster way. We even had news groups, Yahoo groups, uh, which have now closed down, and I have all that in case anybody needs it. They can contact me, and I can send you all the uh, the messages from those groups. After hearing a bunch of gaming podcasts, I said, let's do one for Fringeworthy. And I roped in Trav and John Ryer and Peter Bryant. Who well, now- no, 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 uh, Bruce. I yeah. came in, me and Jay came in halfway through season two. It was originally just you, you John, and Blix. Oh, you're right. Okay, but anyways, we yeah. those guys in. They were all huge fans. John has a, had actually had more experience with Fringeworthy than me, being part of Richard's original playtesting group back in the, the '80s. When the Order of Leibowitz, yeah. Uh, so we started this, you know, primarily uh, uh, primarily to enhance the game, cover all the areas we thought had never really been developed, 
and it's blossomed uh, from there into the other TriTac products, into speaking about basically gaming in general. But we still still consider ourselves to be a topic oriented podcast because we I personally think that it's an easier way for you our listeners to be able to get the most value because you can search our topics for whatever things interest you whether it be pirates whether it be faster and light travel whether it be vampires or equipment or uh, interdimensional exploration whatever it might be you can search at the Podbean site, and you can usually find at least a couple of episodes that specifically are toward what you're interested in. And then hopefully you'll branch out and listen to all five, all the rest of the 500 episodes and yeah, the, yeah. the actual play episodes recorded and the Sunday Skyper episodes we brought over. I, I know we advertised it, but did we actually bring over any of the monkey, you know, monkey stole my jetpack people? Uh, I know John did a lot of bumpers for them, but I don't remember if there are any episodes of them. Yeah, because uh, we also did for the TriTac game Hardwire Hinterland, we did an actual play episode, uh, which was a fiasco tool set that John had written. Oh, yes. Yes. The, I remember uh, that one. I, the, uh, the, uh, the Brass Monkey Ball. <laughs> yeah. Which, of course, yeah, yes, this is a play on words, Jonathan. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So uh, thanks, everybody, who has listened to us all these years. You are the best, except for my co-hosts, who are definitely the best, uh, who stuck Thank with you. me all this time and has been hugely supportive. Even edited the podcast now. Uh, so I, I actually yeah. have to do a few other things in my life because, you know, it's, it's gone through a lot of things. I mean, uh, I, uh, we, we all had to learn how to do this. Uh, we didn't start as uh, communication uh, uh, experts or anything like that. We, we went through a lot of microphones, a lot of headsets, a lot of different oh, yeah. of Skype. <laughs> and uh, now a lot of we- different uh, Skype recording calls. Yeah. Yeah. And now here we are. Uh, recording live our 500th episode we are actually going to record you know uh, do a regular we're doing a regular podcast it's not just us chewing the fat about the past as so many of these 500 episodes are but we did want to basically go back to the very beginning because uh, i went over to the, the the yahoo group that i started in 1998 22 years ago and I looked at the very first, uh, yeah, I, I looked at the, and it's one of the reasons why we did the podcast. I looked at, I listed a whole bunch of questions that we, I said we should answer in the next edition of, uh, of Fringeworthy, which of course was the D20 edition, uh, which we use D20 Modern for. And uh, I said, these questions need to be answered. And I wanted to go over them to see whether or not we actually had answered them. And uh, of course, the you know the it's not going to surprise anybody when I say a lot of them we haven't. <laughs> yeah. Let's go to the list. All right. Well, we need to move along a little faster here because uh, we're at <laughs> yeah. forty-five minutes. Another thing I created was the Fringe Path rest stop because every Fringe port, every platform you went to was basically a desert. It was a plat, you know, piece of metal. There was just the portals. There was nothing else there. And I was like, well, shoot, you know, if you go out five or six platforms, you've gone like 300 miles. Unless you bring a toilet with you, 
you're going to want to go to the bathroom. <laughs> such and so I said, here's this group, this, this one, this one, it's like the, um, the survey service. Here's this group that basically goes out there and picks up and, and, and drops off porta potties. And then of course I said, well, let's put a gravity motor in it so it can run like the, uh, uh, you know, the water, you know, re reclamation in it and uh, maybe put some medical supplies and may even put a little emergency cot that could even, if you know, if you were injured, get you back to Earth Prime by, you know, by kind of like spidering itself out and, and, and rolling you along so you could get back to Earth Prime. So I, uh, I made that uh, the, the French Path rest stop. So it was, it was relatively small. It was only about, you know, 10 feet it wasn't even 10 feet wide. You could, you could easily like stack them like three or four deep in the back of a uh, half-track truck. And I just saw them, people, their job was to go out and just refresh these things. Ah, okay. All right. Yeah, and especially drop them off. As, as Earth Prime moved further out to further you know, worlds or made friends with people who were doing explorations on their own, would be, and of course, you, on the outside, you'd have like a bulletin board about information. Hey, we need more help over on this world, exploring this, you know, please join us. Or, hey, if you go to negative three, three portal five, uh, three platform five portal watch out because the, you know they've got poison tip darts and they're they're mean you know just information you know and and hey I, I've got some oh, you know I've got I, <laughs> uh, I've got a Muscovy that's only been used once <laughs> who wants to buy it and uh, which which I think would be very important later on in the campaign when people started going walkabout and they decided to like you know sell all their fringeworthy exploration equipment to somebody as a stake for their new life on a new world. <laughs> Maybe they would do that, you know, because I know people were always you know uh, uh, either gifting their uh, equipment to the natives on in, in our campaigns. And I I figured that somebody's got to be. Uh, uh, I don't know, uh, uh, pernicious enough that they want to start making money off of that. I think that would be done probably pretty early. If you're going to a world, you're going to bring things like trailers and things like that. They're going to have bathrooms in it. But, you know, it, I just thought that if you did it right, a rest stop on the French bath would be a really nice thing to have. And somebody would think of it pretty early. Oh, yeah. When did you guys introduce the Slargs? Well, actually, I think the first time they were introduced to me, and we can thank John for that, at the game that you, me, John, and Eric had at Rich, the weekend of Rich's wedding. That was the first time I'd ever seen anyone use a slarg. Yeah, I, I never used them in my game. The slargs are another fringeworthy race, and they're like big, big, giant, like human-sized dogs. And uh, but the thing about it is they're abject cowards. They can talk a kind of a pigeon language. You know, they're not very good. They're, they don't have very good dentation for speaking. So they, they tend to talk in baby talk. But they're, uh, but they're basically big, you know, you know, big homers, big furry homers. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And they could be very important to your exploration because there's some secrets involved in them that I don't think we need to go into. But... Uh, I know a lot of people introduce them. 
just to spice up their games. All of a sudden, they just come walk. It says in the book, they came walking in off the French pass and asked for food. Yep. That's yeah, pretty much how I introduced them. Scavengers, big time. Yeah, because you could basically introduce them anytime you wanted to because they were they were just basically travelers. They just walked along the French pass or caught you know, uh, hikes, you know, got rides from other people. I think even the, uh, uh, they even got rides with us, the, the fringe pirates because they didn't have anything the fringe pirates wanted. So they might even have used them as, you know, mascots, you know, <laughs> you, you get a, you get a slarg with a big, you know, pa uh, uh, you know, uh, Jolly Rogers patch over one eye. <laughs> Where'd you get that? Oh, these guys gave me a ride. Nice guys. <laughs> yeah, nice guys. French Myers. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, nice to him. So, discovering the nuclear bomb suppression effect of the rings and warps. I figure they found that out almost immediately. Yeah. Because there's there's a lot of equipment, medical equipment, that they would say, hey, well, it doesn't work on the French pass, but when we get it to a world, we'll still be able to use it. And then they find out it doesn't work. Smoke detectors, uh, x-ray machines, a lot of those things used, you know, some form of radioactive material and found out almost immediately that all that stuff gets destroyed when you go onto the French pass as a safety measure. So I figured that happened like... Probably within the probably tech services well no probably within the, uh, if not the first six months probably the six months to one year because that's when the actual team yeah. was out there doing stuff. And I also feel probably about the same way about the uh, air scrubbers. I mean, we did not bring that out till so much later in the game, but you know, as as a secret of the fringe pass. But I mean, you know. It's one of those things where you would have ex explored the bottom side of the of the fringe pass, and you would have noticed that you know that things stick to the bottom side of the fringe pass, where they don't stick to the top side of the fringe pass, because air is being sucked in on the bottom, creating a small vacuum, and it's being pushed out on the top, making it float away. There's no gravity under the paths. Oh yes, there is. No, there's gravity on the top and the bottom, just not on the sides. Yeah. And not off of it at all. Okay, right, okay. Originally, we weren't sure. Originally, I didn't know whether there was gravity under there or not. And I had to ask Richard that. He said, oh, yeah, there is. And I said, what's under there? He says, nothing. Empty <laughs> space? Just, yeah, there were no portals there. They were all on the top. But there really was no top, you know, because they were both the same. They were just on one side. So that side was the top, and the other side was the bottom. But smart people realized that one of the best ways of going down the French paths uh, was to go on the bottom because nobody on the top would see them. So you'd be going along and all of a sudden you'd hear some vehicle rolling across the top and you'd be like, wonder who that was? And you'd go poke your head up and you'd see you just got missed by one of those, those uh, armored vehicles that was the French pirates. You know, that was one way the early teams managed to avoid being caught by the French pirates. Now you had to use bicycles and things like and roller skates and things like that, or they would hear you. I mean, any kind of a vehicle you could hear the, the they would hear it as they went along the sound of another vehicle because there was no sound yeah. on the French pass besides that. You know, biking you can go pretty easily about twenty miles an hour, or at least fifteen, 
you know, going that 47 miles to the next platform, that was a three-hour jaunt, but it was still you could easily do it in an afternoon if, if you wanted to be secretive like that. Especially if you, if you were wanting to see where that pirate vehicle was going and you didn't want them to catch you at it. Yeah. It didn't help you against fringe weather because fringe weather is on both sides. <laughs> it circles. Yeah. Because I know a couple of people tried that in my game. They said, oh, uh, rain of frogs, huh? I'm going to go underneath the fringe platform. I'm like, okay, you do that. <laughs> you find more frogs. Now there was no portal for them to go through, and they just got walled by them as they came crashing out of the, the clouds. You know, cover, they're all gooey and, and sore afterwards. Of course, there, were, there was lots of frogs' legs to eat. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. Kermit, Kermit too, Kermit. Location and time where all crystals were discovered. Again, this was my idea that there was Ooh. there was some timeline, you know, where all these things had been discovered. You know, the the crystal keys that operated the fringe paths. In those days, you know, I thought that everything Richard had it all laid out. It was he was just giving it out in dribs and drabs, but it was all going to come out in in modules and and things, you know, to, to help make people want to buy all that stuff, you know. And it wasn't until years later that I realized that either A, he didn't actually know any of this stuff, or B, he was never going to tell anybody <laughs> unless they were a close personal friend. <laughs> we later on decided that crystals should be used to basically make the fringe paths evergreen, that you would have all these worlds, these portals that were locked, and they were locked at different levels of security and you needed different colors of crystals in order to, you know, that were set at different security levels to open and shut those portals. So by using these crystals, you actually could say, like a year or two years into your campaign, uh, you could say, hey, there's another portal we can now open up that's right next to Earth Prime, right next to our, our origin spot. So you didn't have to keep traveling hundreds of portals out in order to find a new portal that you hadn't explored yet. So it was really, a, uh, I thought it was a really great idea. And I, we introduced that in the uh, D20 edition. Discovery of the bio-boosting effects of fringe travel and its potent effects on longevity. I have no idea because it's one of those things where you wouldn't notice unless 20 years had gone by and nobody had gotten any older. Well, yeah, that that case then it would... It would be you'd have to progress through a campaign, go through the early, go through the middle, go through the late. And then, you know, you're back on Earth Prime or at a friendly position. And they're like, yeah, you still have the body of a 20 year old and you just turned 40. What's going on? Right. Yeah, that's, that's then they would time. start realizing. Yeah. Yeah. Or if you talk to other fringe worthy cultures, you know, the fringe gypsies or those kind of people. You know, and they said, oh, yeah, you know, as long as I keep traveling on the fringe, it's been dec you know, it's been hundreds of years, you know, I've been traveling on these fringe paths, I still feel fine. And they're all like, whoa. <laughs> well, you know, and of course, back on Earth Primer, it was like, you've got, you've got immortality, and you're keeping it all to yourselves, you know. <laughs> yeah. Wasn't there a, a short story in one of the infinite crossroads about, like, pair of twins a pair of twins 
two uh, twins who had like one was a doctor for IDET and the other was a fringeworthy explorer, and they noticed that the doctor noticed that they weren't aging at the same rate. Maybe, but again, it would have to take years to oh, discover yeah. that. Yeah. When did they discover you could freeze samples and get them past the fringe biohazard system? I figure pretty late. I figure that's one of those things that they yeah. just figured just wouldn't work. And there was no point in even trying trying to do that. You know, because I mean, yeah, they would freeze things, but but mostly they uh, you know, mostly they would probably just put it into things like alcohol and and uh, formaldehyde, just like people normally collect samples. You know, freezing it and uh, I, I think that would probably take quite a while to figure that out. Well, because any, any samples you're going to want to freeze and bring back, how close are they to Earth Prime? Like, I imagine it's going to be hard to keep any samples frozen for a long trek down the fringe path back home. Well, you know, with cryogenics, you know, and uh, well, yeah, just once you... dropping it into a, a container of liquid, hydro, liquid hydrogen and nitrogen, uh, I mean, that stuff would probably last, you know, weeks, if not months, because, you know, uh, uh, maybe weeks, maybe weeks, you know. But the question is, is why would you need to? Exactly. You know, I mean, unless it was something really fragile, you know, that you that you wanted, you needed to keep from melting or any kind of, I, I'm just not quite sure what, you, what couldn't be just as easily handled in a normal collection bag or whatever. You know, like they have been, you know, when they've been exploring the Congo or whatever for centuries. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. So when did they discover that a pregnant fringeworthy mother, that fringe travels, would produce fringeworthy offspring? That could happen fairly early, I think. Well, it had to. I think it'd have to happen after the first year. Yeah. I mean, if we're talking about Earth Prime, because. Uh, and you know those Taes were only hot, were only putting male explorers out there, right? You know. Oh that. yeah. Oh oh, the pathways are no place for a woman. Yeah yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah, I figured that this was probably something they discovered probably close to you know the beginning of the uh, at the end of the early campaign. That would be something that they would discover, and uh, but not not till then. Now, when were the hidden portals discovered, and how can they be controlled? Have we actually told people about this? I am in the dark. Hidden portals. Yeah, the you know the the set of four portals that are in the center of the platform. Oh, oh no, we've talked about it on the podcast about you know five, six, seven years ago. Where let's see, D twenty rules. You and I decided, Bruce. It's like a perception check of like fifty or sixty to see the little uh, key indentation in the exact center of the platform. Right. You put the key in and the four portals appear and they go to above, below, left and right of that pathway. Yeah. Another full set of Fringeworthy uh, uh, Pass. I remember hearing about that in, in, in one of the podcast episodes, but I thought I, 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 I thought it was just like an up and down. It, it only added like two new layers. I didn't realize there was like four whole new layers. Yeah, I thought it was four. It is four. If you look at the platform, okay, you have one off the front the front end. You have one off the back end. You have one above and one below. You know, matching the the cardinal points, okay? Right. So, uh, and 
and basically you, it's like you were going up or down or right, you know, uh, or, or, or forward or back, okay? Because right and left were already handled on the fringe pass because the, the, the fringe roads went left and right. Right. So this basically gave you other directions that you could explore it. Now, once you got there, of course, you had the same right and left and, and the other things. So um, the uh, I'm sure we'd probably use something like alpha, you know, beta, you know, gamma, delta, instead, you know, instead of plus and minus to handle that. But uh, Richard yeah. thought it was a really interesting idea, but he never, you know, never did anything with it himself uh, in any of his... Um, Portal books, okay. Never, never even mentioned it. So he he may he may have decided that it just was more than that was needed. That what he had was already plenty. <laughs> I don't know. It does add a layer of complexity. Well, the reason I wanted it was because because it was pretty easy to block off the French pass. You had one road going right and left, and all you had to do was put a big put a big stone you know tower there, and nobody could go along it. So it was really easy to basically cut people off, yeah. and, I, and especially the, the French pirates. And I was like, okay, so how do, they, how do they get around this? How do they avoid this? And by doing this, I said, There's, that if you don't know about this, if they know about it and you don't, you'll never be able to stop them because they'll go around you and, you know, and they'll go up, over, and down and they'll go by your, your block and all of a sudden you're being attacked by French pirates in the middle of your territory and you're like, how did this happen? I don't know. They, 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 they turned around and went through a portal and then when we chased them to the next platform, they were gone. I don't know where they went. We, you know, we went through all the portals on that platform and they weren't anywhere we could find. And it was like, ah. So <laughs> that's why I did it. Yeah, and this basically adds four new parallel pathways, complete with new primes and alternates and start systems. And yep. All that. Yep. It's just basically the same way. It also means again, you don't have to go very far to find portals that you haven't explored because you've got basically, you know, before you had the positive negative node either side of Earth Prime, okay, and then you had to right. keep going out. Now you've got four more. You see with all their portals. So it's basically now become, you know, uh, 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 like an atom, you know, with, uh, with all the degrees of freedom, you know, up, down, right, left, and you've got platforms in all those locations now. So you basically, you know, uh, added four times as many, you know, there were two, now you've got six, essentially. And we were saying also that I remember a little bit of it now. It's starting to come again, the 5K fun run down memory lane. Oh, this fringe path, the predominant race is not human, but this race. And on the one below, it's not human, but this race. We were dabbling with that idea. I remember that. Right. I think that might have been more John's baby, but yeah, it still would be interesting that it's almost like an alternate timeline of, well, maybe the Termellern you know, didn't see humans as their fellow Termelon. They saw whatever race as their fellow Termelon. So you're realizing all of these worlds might have been all old men or all Demixi. And then to them, 
you know, there'd be alternate cultures of Demixie, and then where on that, let's say the plot, the the pathways above the Demixie world. Oh, we have these, you know, hairless apes here on this one world, and you know, so yeah, I I think we dabbled on that idea a little bit, but we didn't go much farther. We just we did the up, down, left, right, the how to find the key indentation in the center of the platform. And that usually it was used by fringe pirates as a hiding spot. Hiding spot. Right. It was, it was their way of getting around anybody trying to stop them from doing what they were going to do. It kept them a threat until until the end of the early campaign. So when was Tameleron Prime discovered and explored? Post-campaign. <laughs> Never! Exactly! Never! This was something that everybody asked and and nobody ever did it. <laughs> I mean, because they, they disconnected it from yeah, the system. The prime platform, which was the surface area of Earth's moon, is still there with right. thousands of portals. But if you go through any of those portals, ah, you're in space. Yeah, I think we just like mentioned it in the podcast and we haven't gotten any word about anybody, you know, actually figuratively and literally going there. Well, there was only one way to do it. And that was if you got on a fringe train and you basically took the control, the, 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 the forward backward control of the fringe train and just jammed it forward. And when you did that, another one rose up and you took that one and you jammed it forward. And so you were traveling, you know, thousands of, of nodes, a second and it finally would it basically it just dumped you out onto that 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 platform the original exploration platform of the Tamellers where Tamellum Prime was supposed to be connected that's the only way you ever would have gotten there and yeah. nobody I ever knew was willing to do that they were like we would be so lost we would never find our way back unless of course Tamellum brought us back so nobody ever did it in any of my campaigns and uh, probably nobody else's campaign. It didn't really get brought up about how the, the fringe paths really were until Rich did Portals 4 and sort of wrapped up the whole Termellern saga where actually the fringe paths are like a giant circle. At one end is, or at, at six o'clock is Earth Prime and up at the 12 o'clock position is... To Mallard Prime. T Prime. And so if you go, let's say, the positive ones, you're going on a very light. And of course, you it's so imperceptible about the curvature upward that for you, you're traveling in a straight line. No, it's a very slight curve. So it is an infinitesimally big circle. So by the time you would get to Termellon Prime, yeah, you would need that immortality factor. Well, no, you you wouldn't because you'd be traveling on a fringe terrain at, at, at enormous velocity. There's no way you'd be able to get it without a fringe terrain. And isn't the fringe path still expanding itself automatically? No, no, it's done. It's done? Yeah, it's done. Okay. <laughs> no, I wasn't sure. I knew it was like an automated system, supposedly. but Well, that's how it was created, but it's, it's done. Yeah, it basically did it all and it's done. Uh, I, mean, it, I mean, theoretically, I suppose they could make it bigger... You know, they, they had so many worlds that were in the client state that they wanted to bring into the Commonwealth. I think they just had enough on their plate shepherding them along before the Tamellan War. All right. 
No, no, yeah. makes perfect sense. <laughs> right. If you did go to T-Prime uh, before the events in Portals 4, the, that supplement, then you would find nothing there except these tremendous engineering projects, hundreds of portals, and none of them going to T-Prime because T-Prime was gone. They had, they had taken their world, as Trav said, uh, over 40 light years away, and it wasn't there for you to go to. Now, if you, if you went there after the events of Portals 4, then there would be Tamalorn there because they'd come back. There was a, a bridge made from T-Prime to Earth-Prime totally bypassing all these, you know, billions upon billions of uh, platforms and pathways and the Termelern were also bringing other races with them, other displaced races. And yeah, yeah, I don't remember that part, but I, at the end, uh, in, in in that particular module, if you guys you know get it, I I recommend it. The uh, you get a choice at the end of it to say, are we going to keep things the way they are, the way the Fringe Pass is laid out, or are we going to change things and be more connected? You know, like like you're like Trav's saying, and you get the choice to do that. Um, you know, you get the choice to to try to save the Meller or destroy the Meller. Basically, Richard says, "Okay, you know, here's your opportunity to change everything." And uh, so, I've never I've never done the, those events in my campaigns because I still had plenty of things to do before I thought that should happen. But uh, I'm right now we're dealing with the Coptics, which which are in the fourth one. But I'm not I'm not doing that adventure where they basically. Uh, the return of the Tameller. Okay, Bruce, I have to ask this. I have to ask this. <clears throat> Are they still on the same world after all this time? And you know what world I refer to. Who? Your, your gamers and they're fighting the Coptics. Yes. They're almost to the they, end. I swear, they, they're just about to have the final battle, but they, they, they spent the, 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 the session on Monday uh, uh, Basically, I, I had Earth Prime figure out a way to basically create a line in the sand that the Coptics could not pass, and they're doing it by by having the battle on Faerun, which is the world of of, uh, of Forgotten Realms in D and D. And uh, right now, they basically are are they they've got all these allies working with them, and they're trying to now have this huge battle against all these humanoids and people that have been conquered because different countries have been conquered by this the the uh, Coptics with their advanced weaponry and poison gas and dirigibles you, covered with tamelaran plastic so they can't be penetrated by any kind of normal fire uh, weapon weapon attacks and a big giant red dragon who's the who's the going to be the titular ruler of the world when this is all over and done with uh, they're going to they, they, they've gotten all these other countries behind them. they got an army of undead. <laughs> they got a whole bunch of mercenaries themselves. And they're going to have a whole big battle, hopefully, next week. And it'll be the end. Oh, man. <laughs> this has been going on literally for a year. <laughs> this one wow. adventure. Oh, no. Every so, often, every so often, I'll ask Bruce, are they still on Faerun? Yeah, they're still on Faerun. Well, they went from Faerun to Corinne, Dragon, you know, the, the Dragonlance world, and, and, and they, do have a, they do have a wing of, 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 of Dragonlance with them. They, they do have okay. that. They've got two steam-powered planes 
they, they work because they have 13th pockets, which are portable holes that hold their fuel and all the all the water that they're using in this steam-powered plane. Okay, yeah. These are high-performance propeller prop planes that uh, are powered by steam engines. But you know, the, the reason they're able to fly so effectively is because all the weight of their, of their fuel and water are all in an extra-dimensional space. Okay, all right. And they got that from Bureau 13 Earth. Through yep. the, the you know the the helpfulness of of tech services and Bureau Thirteen and Colonel Talbot, yeah. Colonel Talbot. When was the Meller threat eliminated? In my campaign, it was at the end of the middle campaign, so it was about yeah. twenty years in, and they found a scientist who had discovered a cure for the Meller threat, and the Mellers had trapped him uh, in uh, ghost form which is one of the options about going through a portal. You can go into a ghostly form. And he was trapped on his own world in, a, in, a, like a, uh, in ghost form uh, by, the, by the Meller. Uh, so he couldn't basically disseminate this cure to anybody. <laughs> and uh, the, they, they finally found this world and they, they freed him. And he said, here you go. And now they have spray bottles that they use to spray... Uh, any Meller they run up against to, to revert them back to uh, uh, to old Meller. So that was about 20 years in on my campaigns. Yeah, we figured that's about when the Meller menace ended, that we, after we found out about the Slargs and all that. that it was possible to cure the Meller. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And uh. I, I, think, I think there's people... People actually should do what you suggested. That you should, that that some there has to be a situation where a slarg is backed into a corner, and a meller's threatening it, and he can't get away, and suddenly it bites the meller because that's what is fight or flight. And 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 if you back up even a, a cowardly slarg, it'll 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 fight if it has to, and it bites the meller. It really doesn't want to, but it will. It will. The mel yeah. and the Meller turns purple, basically like bloats out like 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 the girl in uh, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, turns purple, yeah, yeah. and then turns back into an old Meller. And everybody <laughs> just turns and looks at the Slarg like, and you were gonna tell us this crap when? And Slarg's like, and he's like, I didn't know. <laughs> and 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 they're like, well, we're. And they're like, well, we'll use you now. We'll put you on the front lines. It's like, hell no, I'm not going on the front lines. Yeah, no, 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 no. <laughs> no, what the slark. I'll take a hard pass on that. Yeah. Yeah. Now, now that we know this, it's totally useless to us. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, one of the things I really loved about this game is the fact that there were so many ridiculously over-the-top things that came up during play. I mean, there were so many weird things in the game that you, that happened unexpectedly that it, it really was, you know, truly a, a creative endeavor because you, you as game masters were free to come up with any kind of bizarro idea, especially when it came to, to Mellor technology. You know, the, the people that created the Fringe Pass, you could come up with anything that you said, well, yeah, they made this thing and it does this a ball that would roll over your body and, and clean you 
everybody. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, unfortunately, most people, when they thought of technology, always tried to come up with like a gun, some kind of a weapon, which was like the last thing that they would do. No, no, no. The Termellern, the Termellern were pacifists. They only came up with weapons after the Commonwealth came running to them because they were losing the Meller War, and they looked and said, help us. And then the, once the Termellern got back into a fighting mindset, they, from what I read, they scared the Commonwealth with the stuff they came up with. Yeah, but also is the fact, as John brought up, is that most of the stuff that they made would be biomechanical. Yeah. They, they, you know, so it would be something that didn't look like a device. It would be something that looked like an animal or a person, yeah. which is what a slarg was. It was a bioweapon. Yeah. It was, it was their idea of how to, you know, this was their, their, their best idea about how to stop the Meller. You make these slarg, the slarg go out and bite them, and now they're, you, you solve the problem. The Meller are now back, back the way they were, and everybody can go back to be living happy lives, except that somebody... I think the Kegak are the ones that, that flipped the fight or flight, yeah. Yes, they were. They were the ones that basically... You know, and they and they were the ones behind the Meller too. So of course they were going to do their best to to kibosh the uh, uh, the Meller. <laughs> so uh, the the Meller cure. So that's why I introduced this other idea, which was they actually did finally come up with something. So when they moved into the late campaign, uh, then that's when I introduced the Coptics as being the great threat because. They were somebody who was as they weren't as technologically advanced as I that an Earth Prime was, but they had just as much resources as far as men and uh, and worlds and things like that. And they had a and they had you know and, and just like the Meller, I mean the Meller, the Tamellern, they had a reason to be out there. They were basically a religious organization. They were passing on their faith. They were zealots. They were zealous. They were zealots. Yeah. Yeah, and nothing was going to stop them. And oh, there was one one game I ran. I think it was a con game, and uh, Breakman Z from my show was there. And I guess I really played this Coptic that he ended up capturing over the top because I got complimented on just wow, these Coptics are real a holes, and I'm like, yeah. And I, I I broke down for Z just what all they were, and he's like, "You were a little too scary in nailing that, Trav. Just letting you know." I'm like, "Hey, you know, <laughs> comes with the game master title. You know, you got to be That's that right. way sometimes." Good role players can do everything, but the Coptics, yeah, out of all three, I mean, all three of them, all three, you know, the Fringe Pirates, the Melor, and the Coptics were all scary. Fringe pirates, they were more of a nuisance. Eh. Yeah. The Mellor were scary. Problem is, they were such fantastical creatures. The Coptics, a overzealous, relig religiously fundamentalist human, that kind of hits home. So I think the Coptics are the scariest out of the three major villain groups in Fringeworthy. Then the Mellor, then the Fringe pirates. That's just me. Right. Well, they essentially were what uh, a, a retelling of the uh, the ASA. They basically were an effective ASA. 
Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Because the A, the ASA to me never worked, and I would have been a lot happier if Richard just would have, you know, dropped them out of the game. Well, I mean, in in the fl- yeah in the flavor text for I think either the late campaign or the really late campaign, I think it was the late campaign that because the ASA kept bringing in forgeries from other worlds that their credibility was just getting knocked farther and farther down. And you figure after a while, oh, we can just phase them out because nobody you know, cares about them anymore. But Bruce, we did the episode about expanding the ASA and what they would be doing. And right. That was a fun episode. I really enjoyed that one. Yeah, we basically tried our very best to make the ASA something that could continue in the, in, into the later campaigns if you wanted them to. Yep. So I thought we did a pretty good job of that. All right. Uh, when does uh, let's see here. Now I have this one here that says when did uh, William Bailey get inducted into the IDA and who knows of his existence? See this uh, way back in the day in 1992. I started publishing uh, uh, printed supplements for Bureau 13. Uh, I produced three supplements. One called Stalking the Steel City. Second was called Screams in the Night. And the third one was Aliens Among Us, these 96-page supplements of adventures and equipment and things like that, which a lot of people never found out about. <laughs> uh, I ended up throwing an awful lot of cases of those things into, the la- into a landfill when I moved to my new house because I didn't want sh- uh, to use up all my storage space here with them. But... Um, they were, they, uh, but the point was that one of the characters was a person who had the psionic ability to actually travel the dimensions, and so he basically, in, uh, if uh, one of the options in the adventure was he, just, the bureau doesn't, you know, the way they treat him, he basically says, I don't want anything to do with you guys, you Bureau Thirteen guys, and he actually leaves Earth by going through you know, the dimensional travel to alternate Earths and eventually runs across the Fringeworthy and joins the IDA, joins the IDET. So that was where I said, you know, and and what was important was is that he had the ability to not only travel to different worlds, he had the ability to take people with him. Ah. So if you introduced him into your campaign, all of a sudden... I mean, it wasn't like where everybody could be fringeworthy, but you could choose who you want. That if he was, if you had a team built around him, he literally could take whoever he wanted. Yeah, fringeworthy or not, and they would travel without you know without being on the you know having to use the fringe pass, or or he could use them once they basically bypass the security systems that was on the fringe pass. Uh, so. That's why I have. That's why I wrote the question back in nineteen ninety eight. Is it when does this happen? So, of course, for almost everybody, it never happens <laughs> because they didn't even know about him. See, I did. I, I I played that adventure in one of my Bureau thirteen campaigns, and okay, yeah, they actually uh, ended up. Um, I had the twist that that IDET actually came to. Um, Positive was it positive thirteen? Yes. Kidnapped him towards the end of the adventure. Oh jeez. Uh, <laughs> and the Bureau <laughs> thirteen t- the Bureau thirteen 
team chased them back to the portal. Because I think, in, if I'm not mistaken, there's a portal not far from Pittsburgh. Yeah. Okay. Pittsburgh. Yeah. So there, there wasn't. A, there's a portal not far from there. So they literally ch- high speed road chase all the way t- to the portal. They Idet goes through the portal. This Bureau 13 team decided, you know what? We're just going to keep going. Maybe they're just turned invisible or something. We're going to keep chasing. And I decided, you know what? Let's have fun with this. Everybody roll percentile dice. And one of my players actually rolled a one. And I said, well, you're fringeworthy. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, wow. I'm seeing a horrible example of physics right there, Jonathan. Just wow. Oh, yeah. Because what happens is, is that he brings the vehicle with him onto the fringe <laughs> pass, and everybody else is thrown out of the vehicle because the vehicle disappears at 60 to 100 miles an hour and hits the concrete. Ouch. I think I was a little bit kinder than that in this instance, and I feel a little bit more justified knowing that the, the fringe path is a at least semi-aware. So I, I had it that because he wasn't the driver, he was the only one who transited. No, see, he's supposed to take the vehicle he's in, too. Oh. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's why we have an adventure uh, called The Great Train Wreck, written by John Ryer. <laughs> Took an entire train, and all the passengers got thrown out. Now, that was only going 35 miles an hour, so, you know, some of those people survived. <laughs> but it would be it'd be pretty bad. All right. So... When did Fringeworthy be, uh, the Fringeworthy begin their exodus and become fringe walkers? You know, how long does it take for people to become disenchanted with the organization they work for? <laughs> According to the uh, some of the stories that we had at Infinite Crossroads, it actually was pretty early. According to one of the stories that was written by Chris Bating, something bad happened to Sunuri. It really put a bad taste in a lot of people's mouths. Of course, that's somebody's campaign. That's how they did things. But if you consider the fact of she had all this knowledge that was imparted to her and that she would suddenly just start regurgitating it when triggered by certain events, you know, some people said that she pro- that as soon as they figured this out uh, and they didn't need her out in the French Pass, they'd lock her up and never let her out again, hoping that that she would trigger and give up more information. And she'd end up becoming a, uh, uh, basically uh, under house arrest for the rest of her life. A, 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 a bird in a gilded cage, but still a cage. And that would really chap the hide of people who had been explorers with her. Uh, any, I mean, anybody who looked up to her, which I'd say most veteran fringeworthy would be, Oh yeah. So if that happened, it would probably be, in the, it'd probably be by the end of the early campaign, because by that time they would have had a lot of fringe-worthy teams out there, and they wouldn't need her on the fringe pass. Team one at that point would probably, you know, would either be retired or they would have been split up to be heading other teams. Yeah. yeah. Because of what we said, I think it's also pretty sure that with this talent that uh, we lie had, uh, she, uh, with her ability to detect Fringeworthy using a crystal, they would probably have her doing nothing but going around the world detecting Fringeworthy. Unless there's somebody out there who's even more talented than she was. But we always said that she had a natural talent for it. 
So that would make her really, really important as a fringe finder rather than a, as a true as an explorer to uh, you know unknown worlds, because you know all the all the countries out there are screaming like, how come our country isn't represented in IDET? Well, you you only have ten thousand people in your island republic, <laughs> and it's one out of a hundred thousand. Yeah, if you're lucky, you might have one. You might have one. I mean, you know, I mean, we uh, the early, I mean, the early uh, teams when we first started playing the game, they were all from like America, or they might throw a British person in, or somebody might actually throw a Russian into the team. But they were almost always like five, four or five of them would be from the same country. And when you did the math, you realized that that's never going to happen. They would all be from different countries. They would have to be. Yeah. So, because Team One, you had somebody from America, you had somebody from China, you had somebody from Japan. And Japan. Right. Yeah, and, yeah. you know, and the next person probably would have been from Russia. I mean, just, you know, or, you know, I, I'm sorry. Next, India. India would probably be the next person because they have the population. Just work your way down the population scale, you know. I mean, you can kind of stretch it a little bit with at least the early teams by saying, well, we, these are the countries that got visited first. So these were the first ones found. But then, yeah, once you get even halfway, like. Oh, no, you in, know damn yeah, well you, that the that the, the Security Council are going to be like, um, no, us first. And that's what U.S., China, mm -hmm. Britain, Russia. Yeah. And Japan, I think, are the five permanent members of the UN Security Council. You know they're going to get themselves to the top of the list. The revolving ones are uh, India, and uh, and I'm not sure what the other members, revolving members, are because they have bombs. The Security Council is all the people that have nukes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And then the one thing that Richard said, and it always ticked me off because he never said anything more about it. We said what happened and when that scared the IDA about exploring the star platforms. He always said that some, they ran into something that scared the hell out of the IDA and they swore off you know, exploring any of the star platforms. Wow, folks, 500th episode. I'm still learning something. Rich has been gone two and a half years and I didn't know this. Yes. Yeah. I had no idea that this, no, I didn't know this. And I don't know the answer. He never told me. I asked him many times, and he never, he says, uh, check out the next Portals book. And I did, and there was never anything in it. He's <laughs> <So, laughs> always hanging carrots in front of me, you know? <laughs> that was he was like that. He 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 loved keeping stuff to his chest and giving out secrets and stuff like that. And yeah. Sometimes I wish that I had uh that I had moved to Detroit just so I could go to all the conventions Richard went to for the next twenty years and maybe actually <laughs> Hound him. actually find out all the stuff that he was always hinting about but never actually telling me about. Ugh. We've already talked on the fringe uh, on on the uh, uh, the podcast about the percentage of IDETs made of non-Earth Prime members of the Commonwealth in 2016, which is what which was actually supposed to be like 10 years later. At that time, the, the timeline ended at 206 or 208 uh, when when I first wrote this back in '98. 
So uh, I was like, this was, you know, what's, fr what's Frisbury like 10 years later? It was what I was talking about in the very first uh, book of, um, of, the, of the Infinite Crossroads. So we already talked about this. Basically, eventually, IDET becomes a minor member of the exploration teams, that all the different worlds keep putting their own teams out there. And it's not that long before IDET becomes more of a, you know, small, you know, a minor member of a larger world. We, we, we basically opened the door and said, come on, join the party. And the whole neighborhood moved in. <laughs> yeah. And that was 10 years later. And I don't think it would be that it, they would become a minority by that point. But I think that they were well on their way. Even in the Alien Corps, they already had like, what, a dozen member worlds at that point? Within the six, first six years, they had like a dozen members. So, you know, within 10 years, they, they would be becoming mi a, a, a minor thing. Not, not that I would say that they were minor, other than that they were no more important than any other member world as far as the overall identity of the new commonwealth that they were bringing. Unita, all they were were just, the as far as tech goes, the big boys on the block. That was their claim to fame. They had the highest tech. Maybe that they started the bureaucracy that everyone else kind of joins into. But Okay, so we got seven minutes left, so let's go on to the fun thing for us to end on the most dangerous moments in an RPG adventure. In our news group, I post a whole list of those things. We discovered it in our whole thing about stopping the Coptics when the players realized that they were so far out, they really didn't have to worry about all those UN rules, that what the UN didn't know about couldn't hurt them. And so they said, hey, we can use bioweapons against the Coptics. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. When you discover that your opponent has no idea how disease can be used as a weapon, all of a sudden, your players get a gleam in their eye. Well, that's true, because remember, the Coptics only had, for their war machine, it was Korean War-level technology. Right. So early 1950s? Right. Yeah. And they were also a very religious group that was very honor-based yeah. and was primarily based on... Uh, uh, it was kind of a fusion, the Egyptians and the Romans and such, who had a lot of things about, you know, treating people that were diseased as anathema. So the idea of you actually causing people to become diseased was probably, you know, not, not part of their, their, their playlist. Yeah. Using some kind of a plague carrier, you know, uh, the, the uh, measle blanket kind of concept. And by this time in the game... You know, they know that if they free, if they cryogenically store these pathogens, they can get past the fringe paths, get to the world where they can effectively use them. And that's what, and already in my, in my game against the Coptics, they've already used them twice. Oh boy. They've used a super virus that is bi biologically uh, tailored to the Coptic DNA. Gonna, yeah, because by that point, you've got all sorts of worlds to play with that have all sorts of biolabs, probably. Right. That's one of the really dangerous moments where you as the GM say, do I want my campaign to go this direction? Do I want my players to be allowed to do this sort of thing to the people they run across? And should I be making that decision or should it be their decision? 
do I want my players to be genocidal? Yeah. You know, because like sometimes people are like, you know, we're the players. We should be able to do what we want to do. And you as the GM say, well, that's not the kind of game I want to play where people go around causing plagues. <laughs> so they say it's a dangerous moment in an RPG adventure when suddenly that, you know, that literally that Pandora's box gets kicked open. How about you guys? You got any ideas of some of the most dangerous moments in an RPG adventure? Ooh. Hmm. Uh, oh, I would have to be... say, Bruce, that was pretty, that would be pretty <laughs> much it where the players realize that there's no rules. They can do whatever they want and there's little to no repercussion. That was a good example. Yeah. Where they just go, Oh, we can do this. And we answer to nobody out here for whatever reason, isolation, distance, what have you. Right. Yeah. Oh yeah. There've, there've been times yeah. like in, in Bureau 13, especially where they didn't quite understand that. No, no, the Bureau's still kind of keeping an eye on you. I mean, you know, you can't just murder all the witnesses. They, they tend to frown on that. In Bureau 13, you, you, they had a close leash on them, pretty much. Yeah. I mean, they let you do what you want within reason. Right. But, yeah. That's a kind of a scary note to stop on, but we're basically out of time here for our 500th episode. I know we concentrated on frivolity, but that's how we started. Mm-hmm. Yep. So we thought we should really spend a you know, go back to our roots when we did this. But we want to, again, thank everybody who's listened to this. We hope you've enjoyed it. Uh, a blast from the past and also the talking about how things could be in the future. We hope you've enjoyed this and we're looking forward to doing who knows how many more episodes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we're at 500. Uh, a thousand is a really long way away, Trav. Oh, yeah. Just, oh. just, just start <laughs> shooting for 750. So we'll see what happens. Right. So thanks everybody. We will have more for you. Maybe this maybe we'll continue with this topic next week. But you'll have to wait until then. This is Bruce Sheffer saying there are a million million worlds out there. So go explore them. This is John Ryer saying keep your powder dry and keep those cards and letters coming in. And this is Blix. Remember, bullets speak louder than words. This is Jay. Keep it simple. The players are going to complicate it for you. This is Jay Libby. The gamer generation is you. This is Amber. It's all fun and games until the DM rolls a one. And this is Mark saying good night and good luck. This is Eric. It's all about having fun with friends. This is Paul. When you remove the pin, Mr. Grenade is no longer your friend. And this is Trav. There's a reason why it's called gaming. It's for having fun. This is Richard Tahoka. Wait till you see what's coming next. Gaming on the Frontier podcast is wholly owned by its hosts. It is released under the Creative Commons 3.0 license. No commercial reproduction and any use of any element of the podcast must be attributed to the Gaming on the Frontier podcast.
Hi, this is Trav from the Travcast. Listen to me Tuesday nights, 8 to 10 p.m. Eastern on listen.dementiaradio.org colon 8027.